Welcome back, listeners, to a new episode of JCOS Presents Sound Sociology. In this series, we've been looking at research methods so far, and we're going to carry on by looking at the different types of observations. Now, this topic, research methods and observations, can take about two, three, four lessons, and that's because of the range of observations that are available to a sociologist. And when teaching a topic like observations, we need to appreciate that there are different forms. Now, as I say, there are four types. There's covert observation, overt observation, participant observation, and non-participant observation. All of these can be joined together to create different types. For example, you could have covert participant observations or covert non-participant observations. And equally, you could have overt participant observations and overt non-participant observations. Now, no matter which one you choose, they all have their own kind of subtle strengths and weaknesses. So I would really acknowledge that it would be a good idea to use that revision textbook uh, by Collins, Sociology, AQA, GCSE, all-in-one revision and practice, or equally, maybe the textbook that's used in your lessons, AQA, GCSE, 91 Sociology, student book, Pauline Wilson, Alan Kidd, and Simon Addison. Obviously, in this podcast, we aim to try and give you an overview within a 10-minute burst. So it would be in your favour to have a look over them. But we will try and skim over each of these. Participant observations are very much a research method where the researcher joins a group and participates in the activities as a full member on a daily basis in order to investigate it. The researcher has to decide whether to carry out the study overtly or covertly. Overtly means that the researcher comes clean and the group are aware of what he or she is doing for the research. A potential problem with overt participant observations is that the researcher's presence may influence and change the behaviour of the group. Uh, This is what's known as the observer effect. When doing a covert participant observation, the researcher joins the group without informing its members about conducting the research activities. A potential difficulty with covert participant observations is that the researcher may be reluctant to ask too many questions in case they blow their cover. This is where at A-level we often talk about the idea of getting in, getting on and getting out. This whole idea that the sociologist is trying to persuade the others or make him or herself a part of the group, staying in, then convincing them that he or she is one of them, and then getting out and making sure that the sociologist is able to remove themselves without any danger coming to them. Whilst there are many problems with participant observations, it does provide itself with a high level of validity, which is a theoretical strength. We've seen studies where covert participant observation is done in the form of Donald McIntyre's work on football hooliganism and Chelsea headhunters.
Supporters of covert participant observations argue that it may sometimes be the only way to study and develop a sociological knowledge about topics related to the illegal activity, uh, especially when investigating subcultures and deviant ones at that. Whether it is football hooliganism or drug selling or club culture, the group members are unaware that they're being observed for research purposes. And this raises ethical issues such as permission. In other words, the covert participant observer observation avoids any observer effect. In turn, it overcomes what we call the Hawthorne effect. Interpreterists are very much a fan of using observations and covert or overt at that, as it helps to give a sense of what Max Weber calls Versten, the idea of empathising with the participants and seeing life from their point of view. Participant observations are a very good way of getting to know the research group. Whether you choose overt or covert, you start to gain a much better understanding of the norms and values which shape that subculture. There are lots of strengths and weaknesses, and it's important to remind yourself of PET when thinking of these strengths and weaknesses. Remember, Practical, ethical, theoretical. Practically, is an observation going to be quick to do? No, it's going to be time intensive. Do you have access to the group? It might be difficult initially. So again, all of these things raise practical issues. Ethically, we've already touched on it. Are you happy with deceiving or deception of the participants if you're going to do a covert? Are you happy with the idea of that you're dealing with sensitive topics and that you haven't gained permission. All of these raise ethical issues. Theoretical, obviously a participant observation is heavily favoured by interpretivists, which means you're going to get a lot of qualitative data. Are you happy with the idea that you're gonna have to transcribe this after you have done the research? All of this suggests that observations are not without their faults. When looking at non-participant observations, this is a bit more like a fly on the wall style observing. The observer may be present in the setting whilst they're studying behavior, or they may videotape the group instead. So we move away from participant observations to non-participant. Studies of teachers and students' behavior in a classroom, for example, may involve non-participant observations of lessons. So some researchers use a structured or a systematic observation when studying classroom behaviour. In this case, they use an observation schedule to observe and record behaviour and interactions between teacher and student as it unfolds. For instance, the researcher might observe a classroom during a lesson and every 10 seconds log the type of activity that's taking place in that 10 second period on a coding sheet. This enables the researcher to generate data on behaviour such as who talks the most, how much silence goes on, or whether there's any confusion around tasks. However, if it is to work, the observation schedule must clearly specify which kinds of activities are being observed. The non-participant observation does have its strengths, ensuring that the researcher has a sense of uh, free from harm and not causing harm to anyone else. The non-participant observation also allows you to remain 
and have a level of distance from what's going on. We often see this when observers come into teachers' classrooms and see how the lesson's going or how learning is going. So think about when you've been in lessons and there's a teacher at the back of the classroom. They're doing exactly what I've just described. Observations, no matter which one, no matter which one you're choosing, non-participant or participant, covert or overt, all has a time and a place. And this is why I think it's particularly important when answering an exam question on observations that you think about the context. It is very rare you're going to get a question which is just purely about a research method. In fact, it's probably not going to be there at all. That's why I would recommend having a go at the following format question. Identify and explain one advantage of using non-participant observations to investigate the behaviour of year six pupils during lessons at a local primary school. That's a four mark question and a very common one that will come up where you're required to not only know the research method, but to put yourself in the shoes of the situation and understand the context. In this case, it's the behavior of year six pupils in a primary school. For now, I'll say happy revision and I'll see you on the next episode of JCOS Presents Sound Sociology.